Hello and welcome to the Policy Podcast with Nick Cater from the Menzies Research Centre. The COVID-19 pandemic is a crisis of truly global proportions and it has, of course, global consequences, often from one country to another, quite different and yet all in some way weaving together into a whole I think we'll never fully understand. To help unravel this, I've invited onto the podcast today a really good friend of the Menzies Research Centre and somebody I think who knows better than most or more than most about more countries than anybody else. Welcome my good friend John O'Sullivan from Budapest. Hello John. Hello Nick, nice to talk to you. You of course now you're, you're president of the Danube Institute which is why you're there in Hungary so you've got a very good handle on that that country a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher and a former uh, senior editor, had a senior editorial position, I should say, at the Times, the Telegraph, and more American magazines than anybody on earth can count, I think. So you know you've got a pretty good handle across those, those three places. Is there an overall story, an overall point you can make about this COVID crisis, or do we got to go into this country by country? Well, I think we should begin by saying that we won't know Um, the real truths about it until probably the middle of next year because we don't know how many people are going to die, how many people are going to be infected. So at present, for example, the arguments about whether or not the mitigation strategy being pursued by Sweden, almost alone in Europe, uh, or the strong lockdown strategy really being carried out by most of the other countries, including the UK after a pause, we don't know which of those two strategies is going to be proved to be the correct one because we don't know if there's going to be a second wave and if the second wave will be um, actually worse than the first, which is what happened um, over a hundred years ago in in the, well, in fact, a hundred years ago exactly, in the second wave of um, the Spanish flu epidemic. But still, of course, and, and, and certainly at the very start of this, we're working with really with very minimal information and it must be hard for policymakers or for, for leaders of countries to make very consequential decisions based on very patchy information, not just about the virus, but on the consequences these decisions will have on the economy. Well, that's right. And of course, we don't know quite the depth and extent of those consequences until we actually pursue the policy. I mean, it's, it's rather like having a, a major budget Um, covering, um, say, several years, and at the same time, not having any real idea of what your revenue is going to be and what what effect it's going to have on production. The the estimates for Britain of the fall in GDP range from about 6.5% to 35%. 35% is a huge number. What kind of policies we pursue to solve that huge fall in in our wealth and income, um, that's another matter. Um, and we should be looking at the way in which countries like our own, um, like European countries, um, handle these kind of uh, problems at the end of the Second World War, where you had actually, in the case of Germany and to some degree of Italy, conditions even worse than the ones I've just described. I missed off a crucial piece of your CV, by the way, at the start. You, you are, of course, the editor at large of Quadrant, and you were acting editor of for two years here in Australia, of course, two glorious years, I thought, in that we had the benefit of your experience and wisdom. Uh, so you know Australia pretty well. So first of all, uh, and you've been following it from afar, how does Australia compare right now compared to some of the other countries in Europe and um, United States? 
I think Australia is doing better than most. Um, I don't know um, all of the reasons for that. Perhaps you can give me one or two uh, clues on that one. But my impression is that you realized fairly quickly um, how the uh, uh, how serious the threat was. That took some time in, in Europe. It took some time in, in, um, in America too. But I think you realized it fairly quickly. I say in this uh, part of the world, we, we had a very well, well, in Britain I'm talking about here now, we had a very well worked out strategy. And that was the mitigation strategy, as it was called. And that the basic idea there is not to, not to let people die or anything like that. It is to protect the vulnerable, particularly, and that means the pe people who are elderly or who have certain pre-existing medical conditions that makes them particularly weak uh, uh, to the virus. And on the one hand, protect the vulnerable. And then secondly, um, try to um, uh, uh, take reasonable, moderate precautions, encouraging social distancing, um, not allowing huge public meetings. On the other hand, you, uh, the, the mitigation strategy did include keeping the schools open. And that was because the doctors had done a lot of work on this. I mean, this wasn't an off-the-cuff thing. It was a well-researched um, program for dealing with an epidemic and was recognized in advance as such uh, by the by the World Health Organization. Um, but the idea was, of course, that the disease would spread. It would, since you protected the vulnerable, there would be probably pretty few actual deaths or major casualties. The rest of the people would become immune over time. Um, so that that point about schools you mentioned is really interesting because here it's been a tremendously controversial issue. You know, one always hopes and you get a national emergency like this and everybody from the left and right will come together in the national interest. But of course, little, little outbreaks of politics occurs. And one of these is over schools. Uh, and you've got a strong desire, divide between the federal government, which is you know, taking World Health Organization advice, taking its own senior medical advice and saying it's fine in fact the safest place for kids is probably in schools right now uh against the victorian labor uh premier who's who's taking this view that schools must be closed and you know although it's never explicitly said that he's probably taking his writing instructions from the teachers unions who would prefer a school without children in it uh, yeah. you, you see that same thing happening in in britain and other countries? Well, you, you see the same effect. I think it has slightly different causes. But I think it's worth mentioning exactly why the, the experts, even when they changed policy in general, did not want to change their policy on schools. And that was because they said two things. First of all, as you said, school is a safer place to be than, in, uh, than elsewhere, but it's safer for other people. For example, an awful lot of working mothers would now give the would now uh, hand their children for the day to their grandparents, and if the kid does have the uh, illness, it would be the vulnerable grandparent who might succumb to it. And the second was an awful lot of people work in the health service. And it's one in Britain. It's one of the I think it's the used to be said it was the biggest employer in Europe outside the Red Army, probably bigger than the Red Army these days. And the point is that all of those people. Um, have children and um and if you were to say that um they that they've got to be kept at home a lot of the mothers and fathers would stay at home too that's not what we want for everybody's sake and anyway it's not good for the children particularly as you said it's not it's safer to be in school um where people can watch for them and where they're actually mixing with other people who by and large are not 
are not going to be carrying the disease, and if they are likely to get over it more quickly than others. So, so that was an important reason, I think. And I don't think the the doctors, when they changed, as I said, the policy from this mitigation, protect the vulnerable, but let life go on in, with a slightly more regulated way for the rest, to a policy of uh, suppression, which means keep everybody at home and have the strictest regulations about them being able to go out and, uh, and socialize. You can't, or exercise, you can, but you've got to exercise. I mean, the British police are taking an extremely tough view of anybody who goes out to exercise and sits down to rest on a park bench and they move them on. Yeah, let's let's deal with that one because we've seen it in Britain and and the same here. Uh, you know, the, the police have been given their riding instructions under ministerial uh, declarations. It's not normally the way we, we like our police to act, but that's the way they're being asked to act. I feel, I don't know whether you sense, it's a real tension here uh, over what we think the police should be doing. I and mean, we're police for us... In, in the British system that we inherited from Robert Peel in the early 19th century, the police rule by consent. They're, they're citizens in uniforms. Uh, they're not, as they are, let's take an extreme case, China agents of the state that can just do what they want, right? And yet I just feel a bit tense, a little bit uncomfortable when they start breaking up a funeral as they did in Canberra recently because there were too many people there. Yes, I, uh, that's happened a lot. And interestingly, it seems to have happened in uh, Britain and in countries like Britain um, more than has happened in some of the continental European countries where you would expect it to happen. Um, it was our police that was wonderful, were wonderful ones, not theirs. But the interesting thing is that the reputation of the police in Britain had already come under some, um, uh, under a cloud. The, the reason is really twofold. First of all, the feeling in the public is that there are many crimes the police just don't deal with. They, they, if you have your house burgled or your car broken into, effectively, there's nothing going to be done about it. They'll just record it. But the second uh, uh, thing they do is, now they're now far tougher on things like insulting remarks on Twitter. Um, or if you say something that's held to be racist or so on. They're very hot and strong on that. And uh, that's given the police the, the title of being the paramilitary wing of the Guardian. Uh, so that um, th these two things were already in existence before uh, the pandemic. And the way it's, the police have, in a sense, as you say, been ludicrously heavy-handed, um, you know, I mean, turning a, a lake, um, uh, filling it with dye and turning it dark blue so that people wouldn't want to go to an area of great beauty. This excited a lot of mockery. It's really quite different in other continental countries at the moment. Yeah, so let's go, let's go around the traps. I mean, Budapest, Hungary, you're in Hungary now. Victor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, uh, has come under some criticism for, for being too draconian in the in the shutdown rules and the powers he's issued. Uh, but for the left, it seems to me that they're particularly critical of him because they've always had this negative impression of him. Whereas he's done things that don't seem to me be particularly exceptional. I mean, they're no more kind of draconian than, you know, Jacinta Ardern in, in New Zealand, where, you know, if you don't actually live with your lover, you're not allowed to sleep with them. Well, I would say two things about what's the situation in Hungary. And that is that the emergency regulations he brought in uh, have been a huge controversy in the, the media and particularly on the left in Europe and America. Um, but that's because they basically were highly suspicious 
and very hostile to him before he made these regulations. So they didn't treat the regulations as as if they were seriously to do with uh, solving or treating or uh, ameliorating or preventing the epidemic. They treated them as a kind of a move to a dictatorship. I think that is not the case. And um, increasingly, that all those claims, those attacks look terribly overblown and foolish. Not to say Viktor Orban is a saint, he's a, a tough politician, but these accusations, in my view, and happy to go into that, are fading. And then the police in Hungary, and I'm talking about everyday interaction with normal members of the public, they've been extremely liberal, easygoing, and so on. If you get five or six youths, uh, seven or eight youths congregating, they basically say, look, lads, you know, keep, break up, let's break this up. But if you have a, a, fam a family group or an obvious couple or two friends, they basically um, are not stopping you sitting down and having a chat uh, going for a pleasant walk rather than what we call now an exercise walk, which, which of course in the in the UK you're being encouraged to you know um, keep it up, keep you know one two one two, and so uh, I think there's, that's quite a big difference. Uh, the uh, the other thing, and I wonder how much you think this plays a part. So we we've already identified, of course, that that closing your borders is important, relatively easy for Australia and New Zealand. We're not don't have any land borders with anybody but Hungary I think it's got land borders with um if my schoolboy geography is right probably about six countries right um, that's right uh, but Orban has has really pushed against this idea that we're all citizens of the world and everybody should be able to wander across borders do you think that that well number one is that attitude towards uh sovereignty um helped in Hungary's case, and two, and the bigger question, do you now think that there's going to be a, a return to some normalcy, that we're going to push back against this idea of all citizens of one country and, and the idea of sovereign borders is going to become more important? Um, well, I think that Orban has both benefited and been damaged by uh, his immigration policy. Let me explain. Um, four years ago, five years ago, in the 2015 crisis when people were pouring over the border, going through the country and aiming to get to Germany or to Sweden, some to the UK. Um, there was enormous criticism of Orban for actually trying to both regularize and prevent that. The criticism was odd because Orban was actually carrying out what were called the Dublin Accords, which everyone in the EU had agreed to. And they say essentially that um, you should first of all stay in the first free country if you're a refugee that you reach. Um, and secondly, that um, the, you, you, the, you have an obligation to make sure that they don't just pass into other countries. Well, he was essentially trying to keep that, but the rest of Europe didn't want that. And, um, and he came under attack as a fascist and so on and so forth or neo-fascists, all the usual kind of left swear words. Now, I've, now, nowadays, all of the countries, including, for example, Austria, um, which use very strong language against him, all of those countries have now said that they think he did the right thing. And so everybody has now, not just in this crisis, but even prior to that, in the last five years, they've gradually reimposed certain forms of border control, and they've gradually tried to prevent... Um, well, they bribed the, um, the, the Turkish government not to let anyone come over their borders into Europe. That's breaking down a bit, 
and it's caused a crisis now with Greece because the, the Turks let, tried to get some people through. But nonetheless, the general feeling is that Orban did the right thing. And those rules and regulations already coming about in Europe, the reimposition of border controls, for example, um, they, they were very useful in the circumstances of the pandemic. Already people had got some kind of structure in place to prevent the borders being overrun. On the other hand, I tell you, no one is as unpopular as the man who got it right when you got it wrong. And there's no, and in fact, my feeling about the current uh, series of attacks on Orban is it's really quite motivated by the left's desire not to look, not to let Orban look like the man who was right five years ago. So they have to make him look like the man who's always wrong today. And, um, and that explains a great deal of the attacks, some of which have proved to be factually incorrect already. Let's go to the United States because the same phenomena is in place there, right? So anything Donald Trump says must be dangerous or idiotic or probably both, uh, according to you know, our friends in most of the media there. Trump, I, I, you know, I think Trump's got the geopolitical element to this right. He's very, it's very important to the rest of us that that he has recognised that China is becoming a, a much more seriously unpleasant dictatorship than it ever was, uh, and that we need uh, just for the sense of our own values to stand up to it. And he's done that very well uh, in his handling of the crisis. You know, well. A few odd things have happened. But then again, I think what's not recognised, you'll know this, you've worked in the United States, you've, you know the country well. What's not recognised is that, that it's really a state responsibility very much. And he, in the actual fact, in terms of lockdowns and so forth, he really he doesn't control that stuff as much as um, yeah. certainly in Hungary. Well, Nick, I think we would both have to concede that um, one of the reasons why people think... Uh, that Trump has said some foolish and ridiculous things is because he said some foolish and ridiculous things. That's part of the man's personality. He's impulsive um, and he's, he tends to give an impression of shooting from the hip. I think that's called shoot, shooting from the lip these days. Anyway, there, there are those elements in his personality. On the other hand, as you say, he's turned out to, on a number of occasions now to have actually been quite far-sighted in some of the foreign policy decisions he's taken. And even if you look at some of the uh, matters in which he was denounced for not paying attention to the science um, on, uh, on the, some of the um, emergency treatments for coronaviruses he's been recommending, some of those are turning out to be correct. And there is a, genu and there is a, general poss a genuine possibility that uh, the lives could be saved as a result of his, in a sense, telling the regulatory authorities to get on with it, people are dying. So, so I think there's that element in, in his uh, policies, which I think we have, to, uh, uh, we have to concede he's done rather better. Now, of course, um, everybody was slow, in my view. Everybody was a bit slow off the mark. And partly because the early indications were, yes, a serious um, pandemic was developing, but, they, but that we learned that fairly late. Chinese were not, of course, telling us 
uh, as soon as they found out. Indeed, while they were restricting air travel in China, they were not restricting air travel between Wuhan and the rest of the world. So an awful lot of people arrived in the gap of time between the authorities in Beijing knowing about this and, and they're actually doing something about it. And we were slow not just for that reason, but partly for that reason. And that's true for Trump and for others. On the other hand, he was quicker than most people in saying trips from planes from China have got to stop. Um, he took an early decision on that. He was denounced for it. Um, they basically thought, aha, we have him now. He's carrying out a racist policy. But in fact, he was carrying out a classic um, what's called quarantine policy, the beginnings of a quarantine policy. He made other mistakes. We all, we all did. And the Germans made fewer, um, and that was because they, they carried out very, they had the ability to carry out a testing um, a regime very, qu very quickly. They had that already. We, had a, we in Britain had a lot of things ready, and the Americans too, but they, we didn't have that. And, uh, and that has been a weakness which I think will now be supplied. The British policy has recently changed on that. So, um, yes, he was um, he's quicker than most but slower in some things. Um, and he, I think he would be well advised. Uh, the, those press conferences he gives, he's cutting back on them wisely because initially when he began by being the kind of impresario of a group of experts, he was terrific and he gained politically from it. When he became a late night talk show host, uh, bantering with the press, I think, he lost that focus and he lost the kind of, well, he didn't lose entirely the sympathy of the viewer or the American people, but he began to weaken it. I mean, the people thought this is a bit much. Um, um, now, but there is, sorry, let me make one final point. Uh, uh, this is very important in my view. Um, you said rightly that it's not just a federal responsibility dealing with this. You're right. But it's not just a government responsibility either. And Trump had the wit not only to make it plain that he would, as the head of the federal um, administration, he would work with the governors, but he also encouraged private sector leaders to come out, volunteer, offer their services, uh, take over um, take over the, uh, the uh, if there was low production of uh, ventilators to start manufacturing ventilators. Um, he did that in a very, very interesting way. So this, um, when the virus is eventually overcome, it will be, have been as the result of a joint uh, federal, state, and private sector uh, co co cooperation. And that's very important. Well, the reason I think, you know, one of the reasons why, why, why the left don't, Trump right, why they get him wrong so often, is that he, unlike them, of course, ha, ha, not only is the ability to speak beyond the Beltway, but to listen beyond the Beltway. And, and I think people underestimate how, how very attentive he is to what, what the public mood is around the country, and he reacts to it quite quickly, uh, which brings us to the question of the forthcoming presidential election, which was going to be the major news story of the year. It now seems pretty far down the running list, but how will he go? Well, I think it's a very difficult one to forecast. Before the pandemic, I think there was no doubt that uh, almost whoever was the Democratic candidate, uh, Trump was going to win. Now, if you then said to me, okay, it's not any Democratic candidates, it's Joe Biden, I would have said, well, I don't see how Trump can lose. I mean, uh, Joe Biden, 
He's got a long record, not tremendously distinguished or anything, but he's been vice president and the senator. He's a good old boy in the Senate sense. Um, and he's got a lot of good links with the media and so on uh, all, through all those years in, in Washington. But he just doesn't, it looks as though he's the man who should have run for president a decade ago. And uh, he didn't when he had the chance. And he, I think he looked as if he'd lost it. And now you have to say that he made some kind of a recovery, not a personal one, but because of some of the problems that Trump had in those press conferences, um, all of a sudden people started saying, well, he's a kind of a responsible guy. He's been there a long time. He's no extremist. Um, we may, he can perhaps sell the Democrats. And again, that looked as though there was swinging back. But that now the latest is that uh, his, he's being very damaged. He's being very damaged by his failure to deal effectively with the charge of sexual harassment. Now, I'm a hawk on these kind of things. I believe that until you've been convicted in court, you're not guilty of any crime, including sexual crimes. Um, but uh, because he's not dealing with it at all, all the people who think that an accusation is the proof um, which is really the view of many feminists and some people on the left, that you shouldn't have any kind of role in public life if you've been accused of even quite mild sexual harassment. Well, all of those people are beginning to turn against him, to raise questions, and the media that's protected him so far can't carry on doing so, in my judgment, uh, without um, totally discrediting themselves. So you have to say that Trump has, comes with a lot of drawbacks, but with a strong presence, a tremendous resilience, and a story to tell. Um, the story is the great American economy, um, economic recovery aborted. Um, what does... Biden bring to that table? It looks to me is he doesn't bring very much in the current circumstances. So I'd have to say, although it could change again as it's changed three times this year, that probably it's going to be a victory for Trump. Um, not the great um, victory he could have expected before the pandemic, but a victory nonetheless. And to Britain, um, to um, a leader who shares many of the same characteristics in that he was completely uh, underestimated and misunderstood by the uh, left, Boris Johnson. You wouldn't have been surprised, as I wasn't, at the size, not only his victory in December, but the size of that victory. Um, so he went in with high stocks, uh, but also with a big task to do in, in uh, delivering on his promise of Brexit. And then he's hit by this, right? which is completely out of left field. How is Boris Johnson doing? Well, of course, he's doing extraordinarily well. Um, I wrote a piece in The Australian this uh, last, uh, last weekend, pointing out that, you know, it's less than a year, um, less than a year since the Tories got 8% in a national election, uh, the share of the national vote, in the European elections, May the 23rd um, uh, uh, last year. Uh, now, he's taken them from there to, he became leader of the party. He semi-purged it of rebels. Basically, he said, you, you know, some people were completely irreconcilable. He let them go. He expelled them, about 21. Um, the others, he said, this is a broad church. You're happy to stay. 
but you've got to know we're now the Brexit, we're now a Brexit party. There already was the Brexit party headed by Nigel Farage. Then he went to Nigel. I thought he should have done a deal with Nigel. They did a partial deal. He, he persuaded Nigel to stand down in all the Tory seats and Nigel got really nothing in return except that he would get Brexit. He, and um, now, uh, on that basis, slightly to my surprise, he won a, a landslide, in effect. Um, more important, he unified what you and I might recognize as the broad conservative vote. There's now essentially a majority of, at the moment, the polls suggest he would get 53% of the vote in a general election. That he wouldn't, because that's not, not been done in the 20th and the century in our own. So um, he's got a very, but he has a very strong position. And part of that position is that the opposition is as divided today as the Tory party was this time last year. Um, and, and so he was, you know, before he was rushed to hospital, he still was the commander of a large, relatively harmonious army of half the British people facing a divided and demoralized opposition. His going to the hospital and being close to death, and it was a genuine thing, um, that effectively made him a kind of, they, people always like, most people like Boris. He's got an immense charm. Um, he's got the popular touch. And all of a sudden, people thought, this looks like a terrible tragedy. There hasn't been a prime minister in office for a short time and then been dying in office since George Canning in the 1820s. And people felt, you know, in those, Canning got this enormous crowds at his funeral and, and had Boris died, which mercifully he didn't, he would have had a huge, there would have been enormous popular sentiment. Well, there is enormous popular sentiment because people, in a sense, are very glad he's there. How well he will do, because he's got big problems, is another matter. But he commands the scene like nobody since Margaret Thatcher after the Falklands War. Can you answer me, I mean, on that question of the National Health Service, which Boris, of course, is now championing. Um, can you help me on this one? I mean, I'm, I'm, I should know, because I, I lived in Britain for, for, you know, much of my life. But I, 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 but I, I just don't get why... Everybody is so enthusiastic about the National Health Service, which, in my experience, uh, is a terrible, terrible organisation that delivers some terrible um, hospital services for people in the most appalling conditions. Why? Explain to me why the British so patriotic about it. Well, um, I'm going to have to come on as the Grinch who stole Christmas here, because I entirely agree with you that the National Health Service is um, not very good at delivering what it promises. Um, and uh, in a regular, everyday way, there have been a lot of scandals in it about people being badly treated in hospitals and mental hospitals. And um, the, the, the problem of one long waiting lists has persisted over the years, changing here and there. But nonetheless, if people have to wait for a long time and suffer in pain before they get um, operations, uh, so it doesn't do uh, the, the great job. It can't do, for a very simple reason. Uh, Enoch Powell, when he was Minister for Health afterwards, he wrote a book. And in it, he adumbrated what he called Powell's Law. And the law was as follows. Unrestrained by price, the costs of medical care will rise 
indefinitely until they consume the entire national income. Now, I was talking to a very especially a strong democratic supporter and a brilliant doctor in Stanford University a year ago, and I quoted that line. And he said, I'm really sorry to have to say, but I think that's right. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, um, what you do is, if you don't have a price, you encourage uh, uh, too great a demand. And, um, and because you're not prepared, on the other hand, to tax sufficiently to meet that demand readily, because it would eventually consume the entire national income, then you're going to have shortages in rationing. There's no, there's no way around that. You cannot have the full range of medical services, universal access, and cost control. Those three things, you can have any two, but you can't have all three. And that's a great pity, but it's, it's one of the laws of financial nature, and, and we have to live with it. Uh, the, the reason for the, how the British feel, most of the time, people are well treated when they go to hospital by kindly nurses and good doctors. They're naturally grateful. And secondly, everybody loves the spiritual character of the ideal that anybody suffering from illness or pain can go into the health service and get treatment free. As I say, the actual practice falls below that, but the ideal is a beautiful one, and that's why people uh, resent anyone like you or me who brings the practical facts and disadvantages to their attention. Yeah, well, let's just go back to your 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 experience working for Margaret Thatcher, because Margaret Thatcher, you know, famously would privatise anything that moved and a lot of things that didn't move, right? Uh, but I don't think she really ever took on the National Health Service, did she? No, she didn't. And she didn't. I mean, she was... Um, um, let me just slightly correct something you said. Margaret Thatcher was an enormously bold politician, and she was an enormously cautious one too. Uh, um, she said um, to essentially, uh, in 1981, uh, the Minister for Energy came to see her and said the miners are threatening a strike. They beat the last government and created the excessive dominance of the labor unions in British politics and life. And now they'll do it again and they're led by a Marxist who's in seriously in the revolutionary business. So um, and we should fight them. And. Um, uh, I shouldn't have said led by Marxists. Art Scargill wasn't the leader of the unit, he was the leader of a section, but he was a very powerful figure in 81. Anyway, um, Mrs. Thatcher basically said, well, how can we resist this? Are there, is there stocks of, are there co stocks of coal at the pithead? Can we guarantee that they, coal can be um, brought up from the ground? We can, can we certainly guarantee that we can transport it there? And really, basically, he had to concede that we weren't prepared. And she said, well, I'm not going to fight and take on a battle that I can't win. Uh, what we must do, and, and she changed, the minister was a good guy, um, but she changed him for somebody she thought was really dynamic. That was Nigel Lawson. And Nigel Lawson then set about building up stocks at the, um, at the uh, at both at the pithead and in factories, making sure that he couldn't keep the other unions on side, got the Home Secretary to arrange that people could be protected if they went to work against uh, pickets. And, you know, four years later, there was a, a strike which the Tories fought and won. And that was a decisive victory. I would say the two great decisive victories in Margaret Thatcher's time were the Falklands War 
and the defeat of the miners' strike. You could say the defeat of inflation, but that's a slightly different kind of battle. And that really is why they're the three reasons she's really rightly remembered as a great historic figure. John, we're trying to squeeze about 10 podcasts into one here, but excuse me because, I mean, it's so great to have your, to catch you between other engagements, to have a good chat to you. Europe. So, uh, you know, the British decision to leave Europe, um, has it been vindicated by what's occurred over COVID or do you think that uh, it would have been better off staying there with the European Union to deal with this crisis? Well, as a matter of fact, the, uh, the, most of the people think the EU hasn't done a particularly good job uh, as an organisation in this. And I think they're right. Um, the, um, essentially, it, it's fallen victim, if you want to put it that way, uh, to the fact that uh, individual uh, national governments, including the French and including the Germans, um, who are normally the leaders of unification and, and integration, they have all essentially said, no, we're looking after our own. If we've got stocks of medical equipment, well, we're not going to give them to you because we may need them ourselves. If you've got masks, we've, we don't have enough for our own citizens. We're not give, lending them any to you. So the Italians, I think, feel particularly let down um, by this because they suffered. They have suffered the worst in Europe so far, Spaniards close second, and uh, they suffered the first. But they didn't get what they hoped would be the, the support and, um, so to speak, centralized assistance um, that the EU it technically promises. I think there's a bit of a disenchantment, really, with international organizations on this issue. The, the WHO proved too submissive to the Chinese in, in its instructions and in not telling people uh, and indeed not letting Taiwan tell them what was happening in China uh, until it was it had gone very far and um, and the EU suffering the same kind of attacks in in um, in Europe uh, I don't th- I think there's going to have to be a big rethink because one of the things which is emerging from this is practicality is far more important than utopian dreams Governments which actually do protect their citizens from anything, really. Governments which actually do deliver the services they promise, who do provide good government in the simplest sense, old-fashioned traditional sense, the streets are safe, services work. Those governments are coming well out of the crisis. One of them is Orban here. Um, but uh, I think the, uh, the Germans certainly are doing so. The Austrians, interestingly, by the way, Orban has said his policy is really to imitate the Austrians because he knows they have a very good system for dealing with that. So the people are looking around Europe and saying, well, that seems to work. Uh, and that doesn't work. And, and, and in a way, national governments have to be in the delivery business. They have to deliver or else they lose elections. The EU doesn't have to deliver, and uh, what it mainly delivers, therefore, is proposals, dreams, schemes, and utopias. And those are, I think, are selling at a discount at the moment. It would be dangerous of either of us to try and come up with a grand theory at this stage. I mean, that'll have to wait for the book you're going to write in 20 years' time, looking back on this crisis. Uh, but it, it, I, it seems to me that, there, that what you've just said is, is one of the big things that's emerging there's a return to localism uh you know necessarily because we're all kind of locking ourselves down and social distancing but at a national level too 
you know, that every country for itself and every country, every government returning to what should be its core business, which is taking note of the welfare of its own citizens. Uh, it wouldn't be a bad thing if that became uh, a, a development that happened after this, uh, this ex- after this excessive period of, of uh, transnationalism. Well, I think it would be a very good thing. Um, I think we've got to distinguish between uh, transnationalism on the one hand, which I think has a lot of drawbacks, and on the other hand, internationalism. What's the difference? Well, internationalism is cooperation between sovereign governments. Now, in that scheme, um, global bodies, the UN, um, the EU, all kinds of the WHO, the International Telegraphs Union, <laughs> those kind of things, they are the agents of national governments. They have to get the consent of national governments to what they want to do, and the national governments have to call the shots. Um, now, uh, transnationalism, they make, the, they make national governments their agents rather than like being the agents of the governments. And consequently, you have constant rows um, because after all, if they make binding decisions, everybody wants to have make sure that the binding decision will benefit them and not harm them. Um, it's much less, everything is, particularly because the unlimited powers of trans of global bodies, are, are like um, particularly, well, the EU, transnational body is a body that essentially says, look, um, if you join here and pay the subscription um, for in future, you will have to do what I tell you on, in the following areas. An international body is one which says, well, here are the rules at the moment and we'll see, and, and then you and I, will, you will have to consent to any major change in the rules from now on. And I think those, they're two very different kinds of international of organization, two very different kinds of international structures. Um, and what we're discovering now is in a crisis, nations want to be sovereign. They don't want to be somebody else's agent. And that's, uh, that's I think, a key difference. And, and I think that's here to stay. John, um, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, uh, announced uh, just this week that uh, he doesn't think the ban on international travel is going to be lifted anytime soon uh, and I have to agree with him in the light of this crisis. The, uh, the only counter-argument I put to him on that is that by lifting the ban of international travel uh, we could welcome you back to Australia to to talk to us <laughs> and lecture us. It, it, John, uh, we, we do look forward to having you back eventually and uh, in the meantime we'll, we'll, we'll be connected intellectually let's hope and connected in the world of ideas by this means if if a little socially distant john john o'sullivan thank you very much for joining us for this podcast nick thank you very much it's been a great pleasure